a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. A rogue band of resistance fighters unite for a daring mission to steal the Death Star plans and bring new hope to the galaxy. It is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships, striking from a hidden base, have won their first victory against the evil Galactic Empire. During the battle, rebel spies managed to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star, an armored space station with enough power to destroy an entire planet. If the Empire has this kind of power, what chance do we have? What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. episode number 224 of Blast Points this is Jason. And this is Gabe. It's Soggy Year Month 6. No, it's June still, <laughs> but it's almost July. What month is it? What day? Nobody, you know, nobody knows. We all know it's still 2020. We all know it's still soggy year. That's all we. That's all we need to know. That's all you need to know. If somebody asks you what month is it, I'd be like, I don't even know, but I know it's soggy year month six, and that means Rogue One. Sweet, 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 sweet Rogue One. <laughs> You're the one that I want. It's crazy coming into Rogue One, soggy year, 
like when we were we got to do Rogue One Saga, it was like what possibly could we do? Like after we did what was it episode episode one fifty two. We did the Rogue 100, where we listed off 100 things we love about Rogue One. Like, what else is there to talk about with Rogue One? And Rogue One, I know, like, for for us, is, like, kind of special because we started the whole show right after The Force Awakens. So that whole first year of the show, of Blast Points, was us just every week, like, oh, my God, Rogue One, it's coming. There's a new, there's a new trailer in Japan. A new TV spot. Yeah, every episode was partly a Rogue One episode for that whole year. And even for months afterwards, because this was the first non-Skywalker saga movie and the second Disney Star Wars movie, the first Star Wars story standalone movie. And it kind of blew our minds a little bit. And we talked about it a lot. We had never had a Star Wars movie in theaters just a year after the last Star Wars movie. It was really exciting. It was like uncharted new territory. We're like, man, this is how the future is. This is this is how we're going to be living the rest of our lives. Well, and we even got Celebration Europe that year. So we had just so much Rogue One information and stuff to get you just hyped up that first year. And just five months after the release of Rogue One, we were going right into Celebration Orlando. It was a lot of Star Wars coming at us really fast. And, and But weirdly, we never did an episode for the Art of Rogue One book by Josh Cushions. There's so much, number one, amazing art in it. And the information in it, the text in it, is so fascinating, so interesting. And I know this book kind of came back on our radar when we talked to Phil Shostak. And he was talking about how the Art of Rogue One book was an influence for him with doing the the Art of Last Jedi and the Art of Solo and the Art of Rise of Skywalker. And I remember when he was saying that, I was just like, oh, yeah, the Art of Rogue One. And I like looked up at my bookshelf like, oh, yeah, that's right there. I haven't... <laughs> I got to look at that again. And the, uh, and the O and the one winked at you. <laughs> yeah, especially because we all know Rogue One had some issues that they had to iron out before the end of the movie. And and really, this book is the most... They don't really get into to any of the changes at the very end, but it, it kind of at least reminds you that the changes at the very end really weren't a huge deal in a way because of how much movies just evolve over their production and just how much Rogue One over its production from the initial pitch from John Knoll through the multiple writers and drafts kind of changed and, and grew from one thing and kind of became another thing that still had the, the core of the original idea, but was a much different film than originally pitched in a way. So it makes perfect sense that you know they're going to keep refining and rewriting and reworking stuff all the way up until the end and it turned into a movie that i think we still enjoy it as much as we did all those years ago <laughs> four years ago ancient history now but i don't know rogue one still though as the years go on rogue one just keeps getting better and better and better for me and i loved it from the get-go but it's like it's it's like a new classic now yeah, and I think as much as it works as like the prequel to A New Hope, I kind of feel like 
it really is fun to watch on its own. Like it really does to me work on its own, which is strange because as much as I like it, like I don't necessarily feel like if I was watching Revenge of the Sith that I would need to put Rogue One in to get to New Hope. Like I think you can just watch the Skywalker movies as the Skywalker movies and you don't have to cram Rogue One in there. And you can just watch Rogue One by itself and not feel like you're missing out because you didn't watch Revenge of the Sith before it or A New Hope afterwards which is kind of neat that it worked out that way, that it, it works on its own, which was kind of the point. <laughs> but it does. And this book, The Art of Rogue One, I don't know why I'm not looking at this book every morning when I get up, instead of having a cup of coffee, just flip through the pages and get energized, and then maybe look at it again around 3 o'clock in the afternoon just for a little pick-me-up, and look at it again right before you go to sleep, just so you have sweet dreams. Because this book is just so good. Every page is solid gold. It's like thumbing through your Rogue One dreams. I want to help. I'm not used to people sticking around when things go bad. Are you with me? All the way. May the Force be with us. We'll take the next chance. And the next. Rogue One, Star Wars Story. All right, so let's start digging into it. Let's start getting into the book because right away in the like whole first half of this book, there's so much fascinating stuff taking us way back to the that ancient history of what, five, six, seven years ago, the sale to Lucasfilm to Disney, and then what was it in March? No, February 2013, when Lucasfilm announced the idea that they were going to make Star Wars films independent to the episode films. There's a great quote in here from Kathleen Kennedy, kind of about that the the whole idea of doing the, the standalone films. She says it's interesting to think about what sets Star Wars apart. A lot of people wonder what that magic formula is, if there is one. I think it comes from an authenticity and a genuine feeling of aspiration that embody who George was when he started making films. George loves movies, anything from John Ford Westerns to Kurosawa films to World War II movies. And I think there's something we as filmmakers can draw on. So what we're doing is following along the lines of that genre filmmaking. The fascinating thing with these new films is that anything can happen. And this is the kind of cinematic history that inspired Star Wars. I mean, that sounds exactly... Like what they were talking about for eight episodes on the Disney Gallery show. Yeah. It seems like they had a good idea of what they wanted to do. And they've been kind of following that idea as much as possible. It's like the formula is the same, but just the way in which it was delivered is just a little different. Well, yeah, because it's the whole idea of Star Wars is Star Wars because it's actually other movies mixed together and put into this universe which is exactly what every episode of The Mandalorian is, and it's what Rogue One turned out to be. And it's it's so fascinating to think of the continuing legacy now of Rogue One, of 
I don't know for how many episodes we talked about, especially after Solo came out, before Mandalorian came out, where we were like, well, I guess the whole standalone thing is done. It's like, well, no, it's not. It just kind of changed its direction. It's something I feel like we're going to be going back to a lot throughout this episode. The importance of Rogue One is just going to keep getting made more and more clear, I think, as the years go on and as Star Wars continues to change and evolve and the way stories are told continues to change and evolve. I think so much of that, the seeds were planted in Rogue One. Yeah, and even beyond the storytelling, Rogue One really was kind of the template for what a future Star Wars film looks like because visually even with the you know getting one of the cinematographers like Mandalorian really draws heavily from the look of Rogue One and the idea of what Gareth Edwards talks about a lot in the book too of how if he made A New Hope exactly as much as he loves that movie and everyone loves that movie it would feel maybe kind of dated or weird or kind of not like a modern film and it did such a good job of making you feel like you're watching what you remember Star Wars to be, but also feeling like a movie that came out in 2016. Is that what you're... (laughs) (laughs) And that kind of modern look of Star Wars was still, when you think back like in your mind of a scene from Rogue One, it doesn't feel like you're not watching a Star Wars movie, but it also doesn't feel like you're watching a movie from the 70s either. It's like, it's that sweet spot where it it just it looks like you think it should look even though it's very different than what you had seen in the past at least as a visual style and then and that's such a interesting thing to think about and that's such a thing now with like these new star wars things that are set in that original trilogy timeline or if we get things in the future that are set in the prequel trilogy timeline like the movies are timeless and like we've talked about so many times, especially when we did like the facial hair of Star Wars episode with Spina. Like there are like things that jump out at you as okay, well, this movie's from the late seventies. Like anything with hair or facial hair or sideburns. Like I remember when I watched all six movies with my daughter, and then we went to go see The Force Awakens, and she was shocked when Han Solo came out on screen and she's like, how come he's so old? And I was like, well, those movies were a long time ago, but she didn't even realize that. And that's kind of the neat power that these movies have. They're, they're old, but they're new. They're timeless. They're forever. They're seventies, they're nineties, but they're not, you know? Well, and it's even how, you know, the seventiesness of the original movie has become the style that makes it feel like star Wars too, as much as John Barry's very efficient set, design has become a, an iconic look of what makes something look star Wars, you know, dudes with mutton chops and maybe a mustache might seem out of date in a normal movie. But, you know, when they made rogue one, you know, we got Merrick with his mustache and all the long hair, beautiful lion men pilots and things. And it's like, that's just how people in star Wars look. They look like a little bit of outer space and a little bit of the mid seventies. Okay, so one of the most fascinating things in the beginning of this book, though, is all the stuff with John Knowles' original pitch for Rogue One, the Destroyer of Worlds, his seven-page treatment. And I had forgotten 
just how much about Destroyer of Worlds is in the Art of Rogue One book. And it's extra fun to go back now to just, I think is at the time, maybe we were just so caught up in the movie coming out that you just really couldn't like reflect on what was in the book. Cause just the whole, the whole idea of this first standalone non Skywalker star Wars thing. The fact that they did pick something that was pitched from John Knoll, who is as much Star Wars as any person alive. May second to George Lucas or Ralph McQuarrie, well, or Doug Chang or something, Joe Johnston. He's he's in yeah, he's in the top ten. He's he's up there and yeah. and he's just such a the kind of guy that's always changing the world in a way in his in his corner of the world. And the fact that, you know, he was able to like, oh I got this good idea. And it kind of morphed into this film that turned out to be great and is such a template for what future modern star Wars is from the visual effects to the, to the design, to everything. And it's cool. Cause I, yeah, I think I forget other than him coming up with the idea, just how much involvement he had early on with what running a little concept team. And then the fact that he was executive producer on the movie and he was the visual effects supervisor he really had a lot to do with this movie. And I think we forget about that because just of the kind of guy he is, it's not like he's bragging about his rogue one stuff all the time. Like, you know, when he popped up on the gallery, Disney gallery, he wasn't like, well, you know, I came up with rogue one and, and, you know, he's just, he's John Noel. He just does his thing. And, and I kind of, you know, forget about just how involved he was in this movie. He just he sits at that table on Disney Gallery. He just sits there smiling with his sleeves rolled up. But it's because he's just thinking about when he gets back to his garage. He's got to destroy his time travel machine. <laughs> Can't let anyone find his portal to the to the year three billion. Right. He's he's dreaming of the future while he sleeps in his uh, isolation tank in the basement or whatever. When Kathy came on board at Lucasfilm and we announced these standalone stories, I just started thinking, you know, that idea from the opening crawl of, of New Hope, of stealing the Death Star plans, you know, it's a, just a bit of a backstory, but it seemed like, you know, that could be a pretty compelling film just by itself. We'd be talking in the hallway with just friends of mine I would pitch them a 30-second version of the, the movie, and they'd say, oh, wow, no, I want to see that. You need to go make an appointment to pitch this to Kathy. You have to pitch this to Kathy. So I made an appointment, and uh, I pitched it to Kathy. The pitch was so compelling that I immediately said, I think this could be great. I think it might actually be one of the best stories to start off the new standalone movies. It seemed to fit very much into the direction and some of the ideas that we'd been kicking around. And the fact that this sort of falls into the genre of a World War II type story, a heist movie. There's no writer, there's no director, but there is this amazing blue sky period for Rogue One. Just, again, going off his little Destroyer of Worlds treatment and there's some amazing art in the book for this blue sky period. Like there's a Christian Allsman illustration of like a Wookiee stealing a computer with the computer like over his head. 
stormtroopers shooting all over the place. There's like amazing Doug Chang stuff of like I think what eventually become a U-wing, like parked in grass, and just I don't know this whole blue sky period on this and Force Awakens. It's always just like oh, just imagination running wild with Star Wars on just the most skeleton of story concepts. And Noel's idea was like a really tight economical story and he was talking about like a streamlined cast of characters leaning on tropes and conventions of movies from his childhood he's talking about caper movies teen movies commando movies well and it's really neat and kind of i think gives us some glimpses into the future too of just how in addition to just the idea of the story how he was also thinking about this movie being a example of how you could make a star wars movie kind of on the cheap and he even talks about pitching potentially reusing sets from force awakens and how that would work and just thinking about writing the story in a way that you could make it for less money than maybe you did something like force awakens and it's it's neat now that mandalorian is done and especially after a season of disney gallery of just how much those thoughts and kind of ideas that didn't actually end up working out for rogue one it kind of took on a life of its own and became another kind of big budget Star Wars movie, but how those initial thoughts and ideas are kind of what Mandalorian became and kind of the same ideas that, that John Favreau was, was thinking of when he pitched his show as, as well. And it really just makes me think how much are those ideas going to be kind of the inspiration for the Cassian show that we're not only getting a show with these characters, but John's, original pitch of it being more like an espionage movie or a a spy movie or a little more about this unit of these you know, people who are specialists and in, in the best in their field and almost like the Bad Batch in a way. And is that the core of his original pitch now kind of the core of the pitch for the Cassian show since the, the actual Rogue One film kind of moved a little away from that? I, I know how many times going through this book, like my mind was just all going back to the Cassian show. Just the fact that that show is coming. I'm like, you know, right before things started to kind of shut down or I can't remember, like during, like there was the, all those casting announcements that Cassian is moving forward and we've got like other supporting characters and it's basically a rogue one TV show. Yeah. But like what band of the rebel spies and, I thought it was interesting going through too with this these early the destroy of worlds concepts how Jin wasn't really the main character it was yeah like a bad batch or like a dirty dozen kind of story where it was like a team and Jin was always part of the team but it wasn't until later when Gareth Edwards came on where the story kind of got refocused into to Jin's story because what originally there's Jin Erso and then there's Rebel pilot. Riatawa, there's K2SO, who's more of a protocol droid. There's just team members, uh, Dre Nevis and Jerris Kestel. And then there's two aliens, Lunak and Senna. Krennic is part of the team, but he's an Imperial spy who's reporting to ISB officer Willix Cree. And there's a great illustration in the book by Christian Alsman again where we kind of get visuals to match these characters. And what Senna is like this giant Lunak is like this little night monkey thing sitting in Senna's backpack. And I like that the Nevis, Dre Nevis kind of looks like Brad Pitt, 
Rhea Tala, the pilot. Looks like she's got kind of like a Blue Squadron outfit on. And like Jairus is a sniper-looking guy. But the other thing I like in Christian Altman, the illustration of like what the cast kind of would look like or the crew in this version, everyone, like we were saying, everyone looks super-duper 70s. Brad Pitt-looking Nevis has got like this 70s haircut. Rhea Tawa kind of looks like Carol Brady a little bit with the haircut. Like, it's 70s. I love it so much. Well, and it just, yeah, it just seems like when, you know, early on maybe trying to think like, well, what? what would a Cassie and Andor sh- show be like? And in going back and reading this, it's kind of like, oh yeah, if they're digging in more on the, on the espionage and spying and counter spying and that kind of stuff that we get a taste of at the beginning of Rogue One, that Cassian, like he kills people if he has to, he's not necessarily the good guy, but he is working for the good guys, but he's the, you know, doing the bad stuff that the good guys need and that there's, I don't know. There's a lot of potential in that, and if, and it it's something we really haven't seen before in Star Wars that could be really interesting. Well, and I know, like for since the beginning, like we've referred to it as the Cassian Show, and like oh, the Cassian Show and Cassian Show. But yeah, it, what if it is more of like a a team, even like how the Mission Impossible movies are, or the Mission Impossible TV show was. Where, you know, Ethan Hunt is kind of the main character, but it's really about the team and the crew and everyone has special skills. Yeah. I want to watch that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, uh, Senna and, uh, Lunak will be back. Okay. So May, 2014, Gareth Edwards is announced as the director. It's like, remember it was days before the release of Godzilla. Cause I remember going, it was like, like the day before or something. Cause I remember going to see Godzilla in the theater and being like, this guy's going to make a star Wars movie. And I love them saying in the book, which we've heard before that he, he wasn't hired for rogue one for God, for God, because of Godzilla, he was hired because of monsters. And I think the quote in the book was because the focus on monsters is not the monsters. It's the humans. And it makes sense. It, I, I don't know that Monsters is the best movie I've ever seen, but it's probably the best movie I've ever seen that was made by like five people or however many few people made it. Like it didn't feel as low budget as it was and it was an enjoyable movie and it was cool having someone coming in to do a Star Wars movie who is a director, but also kind of understood the the visual effects part of things as well because visual effects are kind of a big part of star wars in addition to all the other things so it just at the time seemed like a good fit and in hindsight it seems like he was a great fit for new star wars well joining our star wars filmmaking community is a rising star whose work on monsters and the blockbuster success of godzilla has drawn the attention of the world and his next film will be the first Star Wars anthology film, so please welcome Mr. Gareth Edwards. We've talked about Zero Dark Thirty, Saving Private Ryan, Saving Private Ryan, Black Hawk Down. You're not kidding about this being a war picture, are you? No. <laughs> it's called Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> he starts working with uh, Gary Whitta. On the screenplay, he's talking about how he wanted a very real approach to the film. Uh, Doug Chang, uh, excited about the, the, the whole idea of like a realness, comes on board. Production designer Neil Lamont is hired. 
He worked on Edge of Tomorrow, The Force Awakens, Harry Potter movies, and he was an art department assistant on Return of the Jedi, so he has a lot of history. And I, I love, there's a, there's a Doug Chang quote in here where he says, of all the films I worked on, this one probably has the most art. Which, from Doug Chang, that's really saying something. I mean, this guy worked on The Phantom Menace. He locked up in that closet at Skywalker Ranch for, for 10 years. Like, George Lucas would show up on Fridays with a stamp pad and, like, some, some Lunchables for Doug Chang. Here, here you go, Doug. He goes on saying, and that's all because of Gareth. I'm amazed he can keep track of both the narrative and the visual design landscape and how the art and design evolves with the story. It's hand-in-hand because that's how he works. We're coming into a fascinating period here with the book where it it is different. Like, having spent so much time with the the prequel trilogy art books, the Gareth Edwards approach to the art department and the way the art informs the story and the story informs the art, it's fascinating. And it's different than anything else we've seen. Well, and it's it's fun to see, too, because they kind of... Because they were trying to fit in that particular time period between the prequels and before the original trilogy and literally ending right at Rogue One. It was interesting seeing them working within the constraints they knew they had where they couldn't stray too far from New Hope aesthetics. But they also knew they were making a new movie and that it needed to have... It needed to have new stuff. They understood that people want to see new stuff in a new movie. And and the way they were able to really add so much new stuff that's now, like with the Star Wars Squadrons game coming out, like it has Ewings and the TIE Reaper, I think that's from Rogue One in it. Like just in with Mandalorian, with the Death Troopers, how like those things are now just part of that time period, even though they never existed before Rogue One and everything just totally feels like it's always been there for 40 years when it hasn't it's just yeah it makes it just an extra layer of, of fascinating watching them kind of make those decisions and where they started from and how some of the designs don't seem like they fit in and how they were able to start from a position where it kind of looked out of place and ultimately end up with something that's just it's a classic star wars design and you never second guess it yeah i mean i think of that with k2so where, like, really, we've never gotten a droid that essentially is, like, the class of K2S. It's not like K2S is, is like, a typical protocol droid. There's just something so Star Wars, something so natural about K2SO that it's just like, oh, yeah, well, of course, looks great. And then when we got the, the, the prison security droids in The Mandalorian and there was a little bit of kind of updated K2SO-ness to them, it was like, oh, yeah, cool. Well, that makes sense for a movie that's just, what, four years old. No, not even when Mandalorian came out three years old. Yeah, and you look at, you know, a, like a B2 battle droid and then you look at K2SO and it just seems like, oh, yeah, of course, you know, that's just kind of what military droids look like in star wars and he looks like something that empire would have made and he seems like he's got some dna from the from the prequel droids from the past and yeah i I was thinking about that the whole time reading through the k2so chapter and, and seeing how different a lot of the other designs were of just how absolutely perfect k2so was and and he just never it wasn't like a design you had to warm up to like it just totally i don't know at least to me never felt like he ever didn't exist 
And, and that's a thing with this book, too. There's page after page after page of K2SO concepts. And it's it's so interesting going through it. You look at all those early K2SO concepts, and it's almost like in your head you're like, oh, you're not there yet. No, that's getting closer. <laughs> yeah. Until finally they like, they start there is the K2SO illustration where it's just like, yep, that's him. You got it. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah. Well, and it's not even one because, you know, and sometimes you look in the art books and, and, and sometimes it's half the fun of like, oh, that other design is so cool. I wish they would use that design or, oh, it would have been interesting if they used this design. And it was just like, yeah, going through the K2SO, it's just like, no, he's perfect. Why would you want anything other than what we got? Well, another thing with this book is, for example, like Senna. Senna for the longest time was more off like what with all the things they were designing for senna became more off so it isn't something like where there's something unbelievably cool concept wise that you're seeing and it's like well we never saw that at all and maybe we never will because who knows it's like when there were a lot of things in this book that were in the concept stage that did end up on screen but just not as the original intent well, and also just in general, too, a lot of, you know, as we get a little farther in the book to some of the Jetta stuff, like just the kind of people in the crowd designs for the the Jetta citizens and how much that just look has kind of become the civilian crowd people of Star Wars films in the future now, too, or were kind of the designs from Rogue One just kind of being brought forward to, you know, when you're in the cities in Mandalorian, like it kind of looks like the people you saw in Jeddah or the people you saw in the beginning at the, I always forget the name of the asteroid, the asteroid planet thing. Oh yeah. I always do too. And I like in this book, they call it planet X, which I like that name the best. I wish that was the actual name on screen, but yeah, but really, yeah. Like this book is, this is like the sacred Jedi text for the modern star Wars era. As far as what, does modern Star Wars look like? Like this is even more so, I think, than Force Awakens. It's funny because it's funny how, although Force Awakens was the future, it was more tied to what we had seen previously in a lot of ways. And then here with Rogue One, we're actually in the time period of what we'd seen before, but they were able to kind of expand what the visuals of Star Wars were for kind of the future and it is the the template that seems to be, you know, they keep going back to going forward. And even Solo has like a little bit of the Rogue One, I think, feel to the look. I feel like there's something very Star Wars in that way of thinking. There's something <laughs> yes. that's very slyly George Lucas, but I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. But, yeah. Um, it is a bit of a risk when people are, have grown to expect certain things. And to try to meet that expectation with the things that we're creating, that's what I get the most excited about. It gives us an opportunity to really explore completely different stories with different characters, but inside the same universe. And we treat Star Wars now as almost like a kind of history that we're, we're drawing from. George left us this amazing mythology that, that we can now use as we create these new stories. So that's really exciting. What I've against it, we're going into kind of the evolution of the early the early script. We're now with, the, with Gareth Edwards on board, where Krennic and Willix switch, with Willix becoming the spy. That made me think to remember all the 
anticipation leading up to Rogue One where there was all the thing like somebody's a spy in the group and it's actually working for the Empire. Remember we kept hearing that? Oh, yeah. And people were like, I bet it's it can't be Donnie Yen, so maybe it's Bayes. <laughs> You're right. I forgot about that. That Yeah, there was always rumors that there was a spy. And I guess the rumors were right from a certain point of view because that was a part of the story at one point. Lunik and Senna are gone and Baze and Chirik kind of come in. And this is around the time when Jin is put in the forefront of the story. And in this early script, Jin is hiding from the Empire and her mother just was a Jedi, which is kind of fascinating to think about instead of Lear Erso kind of being, you know, the, the, the believers, like acolytes of the Jedi. I can't remember what the name in the Catalyst book was for the, the group she belonged to. And Galen was still an Imperial engineer, the designer of the Death Star. And I don't know. I, even when I read this stuff, I still get excited. I'm just like, man, Rogue One, why am I reading this book? I could just be watching you. And uh, along with the, the changes in the story, there's all, again, there's this amazing art. And we start to get learn about like what Doug Chang was talking about, how for Gareth Edwards, the art and the story were so intertwined. Sounds like that was super exciting for everyone. And we, we start learning about Gareth Edwards' pie charts of the story. Did I read this when this book came out? I don't know. I couldn't remember because I was reading this like this week and I was like, what? Yeah, I had forgotten about the pie chart part and just what was the idea that he kind of like mapped out the sections of the movie into this pie chart and the idea of the end of the film kind of relaying to the beginning of the film, which is why it was a round pie chart. Is that Am I remembering it right? Yeah, Eric Tiemens is talking about it. From our first meetings, Gareth had us drawing pie charts to break down the acts. The first act, second act, third act. It was always a circle. From our hero's family to an underworld to the rallying of the troops, Gareth always wanted to get Jin back home again. It starts with home and it ends with a metaphorical home. The charts helped us get the structure of the story in a way that was fun, but also very ambitious. And, of course, the story is all about the Death Star plan, so I doodled Death Star under them. But I, I love them then going into in the book. That idea of Jin starting at home and ending in this symbolic home. I feel like when I read that, when this book came out, I was like, whoa. But I hadn't really thought about it since then, and I, I love it so much. Like They say in here, Jin's return to not the literal location of her childhood home, but to the clarity of purpose represented by the family she lost as a child and has an opportunity to rediscover. For Edwards, it was a trajectory intended to be a narrative rhyme with Luke Skywalker's origins in A New Hope. A thematic contrast these classic as aspirations of adventure. And what they say that Luke grew up out of the way in dreams of joining and like joining a war and going off and living, you know, the adventure. Jin has grown up with war and wants to find a way back home. The, what they say, the essence is the same. It's the hero's journey, leaving home, finding the truth, facing the enemy, and returning. I don't know where I was when I read this book the first time, because I don't remember any of that. And it's like, yeah, reading it again, I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's all right there. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, that's the classic thing we talk about all the time. Like after you read it, you got to go walk outside or something. You got to just like go sit and look at the birds outside. Look at the grass blowing. Look at the sky. <laughs> Nothing's the same after that. What's so great with this book, and even, you know, regardless of it being Star Wars, is just getting kind of an insight to just how movies are made and the idea, too, that what the initial pitch of a movie is and how much it changes based on bringing in writers. And once you get a director and the director kind of puts their stamp and their feelings and and thoughts into a movie, how they grow and change and, and morph throughout the development and that, you know, it's not like always where someone writes a script and then you hire someone and they film the script and then that's a movie. And that a lot of times it is this constantly evolving process based on the the thoughts and ideas of all the different people working on it. And this book does a really good job of kind of showing that journey from John Knowles' seven-page Mission Impossible crew to becoming a movie about this woman on her own hero's journey and trying to find her way back home. Yeah, and I think that was part of the thing, like, after this book had come out. Like, the book came out, I think, like, what, the day before, the day Rogue One came out. And like we said, there was so much, oh, the reshoots and, oh, Rogue One and blah, blah, blah. And then, like, I remember loving the movie when it came out and then reading this stuff in the book and being like, I don't even care what they had to do in the last two months before this thing came out. Because this movie is speaking to me. This movie is working. And then it goes in after that with Doug Chang kind of talking about the importance of color in Star Wars movies. Of how it's it was so clear in the prequels, the original trilogy. It was such a George Lucas thing that you know where you are via the overwhelming color of whatever planet you're, you're on. Dagobah is that swampy green and Cloud City and Hoth and the Death Star grays versus the earth tones of Tatooine. And they're talking, like Doug Chang is talking about how throughout Rogue One, the movie gets brighter and brighter as it goes. And in kind of, when her heroes, when her story gets dark, the movie gets incredibly dark. And as the hope begins to rise, the movie gets brighter and brighter and brighter until eventually we're on Scarif and it's bright blue skies and blue water. And the last time we see Jin, it's literally the, the screen is filled with light. Right. The movie eventually goes to, yeah, to pure white and it washes over everything. It's so subtle when you're watching the movie. You're not thinking of that. But once you read it in this book and you hear Doug Chang talking about it and how Gareth Edwards and blah, and blah, you're just like, oh. That's why Star Wars movies are better than all the other movies. Because <laughs> you, you can get that stuff. It's like, you know, it's like going back and watching the, the, like we said, the originals and the prequels. And if you think of that stuff, you're just like, that's why those movies are so awesome. Because you can even think about it on that level, too. You just blur, squint your eyes and just watch them for the color. <laughs> I'm just watching it for the colors, man. That's all I'm doing. Yeah. I heard I heard about this book, Colors and Shapes, and I just watch Star Wars for the colors and the shapes. This is the Star Wars story of colors and shapes. You can read along with me in your book. You will notice time to turn the page when you hear R2-D2 beep like this. Let's begin now. 
there's all this amazing art after that with like Krennic wearing a hat and there's all these explorations on uh, Krennic shuttle, which is, I think there's like three, four pages of just versions of Krennic shuttle, which I can never get tired of. But then we start getting into Gareth Edwards and this whole idea of concept boarding. And so Gabe, what, what is concept boarding? Again, I don't know how I totally forgot about all this stuff, but yeah, I guess the idea is with traditional storyboarding, you're kind of doing drawings to show the motion and you know how the cameras are moving and how the story flows and how the action flows from scene to scene. But the idea with the concept boarding is just drawing compositions and shapes and the big images that you want to see. It's almost like in animation where you, you draw the keyframe, which is like the most important pose first and you draw all those and then someone goes in and draws all the in-between frames, you know, to smooth between them. It's almost like that of like, these are the big shots that I want to hit in the movie. And a lot of them are, they're very geometric. They're very stylized, but on purpose. And it sounds like they went in and they did all those kind of just, in black and white to really just get the composition. And like we were saying without the colors, this is the shapes part. It's like we had the colors for the movie and now they're trying to just figure out the shapes for these big shots. And yeah, you look at them and you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that scene. I remember that scene. And that's kind of where some of these really iconic visuals come in the movie. Like there's some great ones from the, the opening sequence of, of Krennic ship flying, through the rings of the planet. Like looking at some of these concept boards, which there's some gorgeous like two-page spreads in the book of just these these concept boards. It reminded me a lot of the the George Lucas Frames books that came out, those crazy books he did with Rinsler, where it was just here's what 30, 40, 50 of the key frame shots from every Star Wars movie, episodes 1 through 6. The the concept boards like remind me of just like here are the yeah like the perfect shots we need to hit for every moment. It's kind of the silhouettes of Galen talking to Krennic and the Death Troopers through the grass and all this stuff. And it's neat just comparing it to the other way that Gareth Edwards works too. Is like when he's actually on set filming, he likes to be very like handheld camera and freeform and kind of move around and and kind of find the the shots and everything on set. And they even, they made a point of showing in some of the behind the scenes, how like when they were on in Jetta city, how they actually made the set completely 360 degrees and had the, the onset crew people in costume. So he could move the camera anywhere and how he combines working that way where it's very free form with then also trying to hit these kind of pre-composed glamour shot composition parts like he's kind of planning these parts i guess so that all the in-between stuff he can kind of just find on on the day but know that he needs to at least have these these beauty shots i kept thinking through a lot of this too it again reminded me so much of the disney gallery show we need gareth edwards back (laughs) because I kept thinking of like reading all this stuff like, man, he would have the time of his life with the volume. Like the volume was almost made for Gareth Edwards to film on. Are there any 
behind the scenes shots or, or anything of like, did he get to visit the set? Like, was he on the set of Mandalorian? You would think they would have like, let him come by and check it out. I mean, he was at the galactic innovations thing in LA, the ILM thing. He was there in the crowd. Yeah. So he's in LA. So maybe they let, maybe they let him come by and hang out. I hope. Cause wait, he's working on his sci-fi movie with what Kiri Hart producing, which weirdly Kiri Hart is also part of Ryan Johnson's and Ram Bergman's production group now. So there's some weird early era classic Star Wars thing going on and, I don't know. He could, but they make a point even in the Mandalorian saying that the volume is not their own. And then who knows, maybe he's going to do the volume for whatever he's got going on. I mean, there's Kiri Hart with him on that. So I don't know. Yeah. It's a good point that if, if there's any non star Wars director who used to be a star Wars director, like he's the kind of guy that would make a movie and you, and, and try out the new technology of the volume. I mean, he's got the visual effects background, He's got the Star Wars background. Like, yeah, I hope so. I want to see a movie, more movies, more things using using the the screens. I'm still holding out hope that Gareth Edwards can come back for the Cassian show. One of the episodes, maybe the last episode of the season, like how Taika did for Mandalorian or something. Like, come on, please. <laughs> or at least let him play a somehow a, a much younger version of his character from Last Jedi. <laughs> Distrusting salt off officer. He can play that character's dad. Art-wise, going forward in the book, I mean, there's there's so many gems. There's page after page of the Imperial hovercraft. There's some Saw Gerrera concepts where I, I never get tired of the fact that it was Kiri Hart who recommended that they incorporate Saw Gerrera into the story. There's two tubes art. There's Cheerit and Bay's art. And it looks, the thing I always think is fascinating that it looks like Chirrut was always intended to be played by Donnie Yen and no one else. Like ever, even the earliest concepts of Chirrut, it's Donnie Yen. Who else do you get, honestly, to play Chirrut? There's about four pages all about Borgullet. It's worth, it's worth buying the book just for Borgullet. Yeah. Well, there's like, I want to say like a third of the book is just beauty paintings of Jetta. That's a, that's a weekend right there. I'm just going to get. Go sit on the beach and just thumb through the Jetta paintings. Nobody talked to Gabe. He's looking at some Jetta pictures. Yeah, it's it's Jetta time. <laughs> There's so much about Mustafar, and they go into you know the long, long history of Vader's castle, and it, of course goes all the way back to Lee Brackett's incredible early version of The Empire Strikes Back, and the Emperor's Red Cave from those early versions of Return of the Jedi, and and I like a. There's a part when in the Mustafar part where Christian Alsman is talking about how, well, of course, Vader's castle is kind of influenced by Temple of Doom. I was like, oh, yeah, I just put that together now. You're totally right. Never even crossed my mind, but it's completely obvious now that I, now that you say that. Yeah. Yeah, and then finally at the end, we get to the final battle with Scarif. And there's a, there's a Doug Chang quote here where he says, very early on, Gareth wanted to set the end battle in a very dramatic place, visually dramatic. He wanted to create a tropical paradise because he wanted Jin's story arc to land her in a bright and crystal clear location to show that she is now completely clear about the mission. I love that stuff so much. <laughs> Again, this is why it's Star Wars. <laughs> Because you've got people like Doug Chang saying things like this, where it's like the thing, you know, it's like 
Vader's Castle and Temple of Doom. The things that are right in front of our face all this time. Yes, there's crystal clear water, blue skies. Jin's mission is now clear to her. Everything is clear for everyone, even for Radis. Everybody. Everybody knows what they got to do at this point. It was all right there in front of our face. We couldn't see how crystal clear it was. Well, and there's, if you want to see more of the, the whole idea with the concept boards, there's a like three, four pages of just concept boards of the end of the movie. And there's some really, really cool images. And just, you can kind of see the whole, what they're talking about with just the compositions and just the, the shapes. And that this movie is, it's Star Wars color and shapes. It's not just a goofy kid's book. It's how you make a Star Wars movie. Lucasfilm never throws anything away. Colors and shapes, yeah. It was They put it out like, hey, look at this wacky book for kids. No, it's a manifesto. <laughs> it's how this thing is. It's all colors and shapes. When art-wise, there's like, there's like a quadruple punch by Adam Brockbank, where he has some amazing illustrations of, it's called Space Monkey 1B. Which we later began to know and love as Bistan. There's an amazing POW illustration of POW running and screaming by Adam. There's a, a Radis illustration that's incredible by Adam. I don't know. Well, the best thing about the POW one is how they talk about he was a design for Force Awakens and he had like long hair metal guy hair. <laughs> what? Yeah. The quote is uh, Lunt Davies has the quote, Powell originated as a sketch for The Force Awakens, just a one-off drawing from a creative brief that never made it into the movie. He started as a guy with loads of long, spiky hair, glam rock hair, to give you a sense of volume, who is basically just a mouth. <laughs> and then for Rogue One, that didn't work with the military angle, so I replaced the hair with a kind of kepi, but kept the big mouth. Gareth liked the idea of him in the battle, turning to his comrades and yelling, Come on! Gareth Edwards, please come back. Please, please, please come back. Uh, well, we can't forget to the section about the, the adats is great, too, because there's there's some in the uh, text of just discussions between Gareth Edwards and Doug Chang of like what to do for the adats and just how Doug Chang talks about how his memory of adats doesn't match what the real adats were in Empire. And finally, Gareth is like, just make how you remember them and don't worry about being it, how they really were. And that's how we kind of, if you compare the rogue one adats to the original adats, they aren't the same, but I think most people watching the movie are just like, Oh yeah, there's adats. That's how they look. It's not. <laughs> and it's kind of became a, a mantra for a lot of the designs in the film of draw. What was it? Draw what, how you remember it, not necessarily how it exactly was. Well, and that's the, the the whole, the last chapter of the book is titled How You Remember It. And there's another quote from Doug Chang where he says, you'd think that a good percentage of our designs would have been locked before we started because they'd ultimately have to blend seamlessly with episode four. Gareth Edwards was definitely respectful of that and tried to stay true to that. But there are other interesting components to his approach. Because we're coming to the story earlier, he always wanted to add a little bit, but give some backstory to the designs we've seen in episode four. Yeah, and they say that, yeah, the driving mantra for the film, not just in the art department, but across all areas of production, became how you remember it, not how it was. Promoting the notion 
that remaining true to the feeling of the original movies did not necessarily require hardcore sticking to the details, the, the nerdy stuff, the internet stuff, you know? Mm. It's, you know, it, it's, it's feel, don't think. It goes back to the, the, the whole Jedi way of everything. And that's the way, you know, that it was the lesson learned from this movie that, like we said, it's the ripples of Rogue One in the, in the pool of Star Wars are pretty great. Yeah, because, I mean, that's even though they didn't say those exact words on the Disney gallery, like that's what the Mandalorian is. It's like the Mandalorian is how you remember Boba Fett, that he's much cooler than if you go back and, you know, I'm not saying Boba Fett's not cool, but he doesn't do much. And IG 11 is like how you remember IG 88, because when you were a kid, he probably had a lot of cool adventures as his action figure, but in the movie, he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't move. <laughs> but when you saw him shooting up a bunch of Klaatus and Nictus or whatever he's fighting in the first episode of Mandalorian, everyone was like, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's how he moves. That's what he did. Even though we never saw him do it before, because it's how we remember it in our minds, in our hearts. So if anything, this book is the, the first text in Star Wars school. When you're in kindergarten, you get the art of Rogue One, and that's your first lesson in Star Wars school. I was so happy to go back to it again and begin my education in Star Wars style and going reverse. I mean, for me, it changed my life watching Star Wars. Like, and I think that I can. A lot of my friends were the same. Even though they didn't get into filmmaking, they still had a massive impact on them. And so, hopefully, the the true test of Star Wars isn't tonight or this week or whatever. It's going to be 20 years from now. Is if someone, I'm crossing the street and someone passes me and they've got a t shirt with K2SO or a Death Trooper, then I'm gonna be like, yeah, we did it. It's Darth Vader, watch out! And he's got a lightsaber! It's Kenner's Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. I got you now, Ben Kenobi. With R2-D2 and C-3PO. There's even Chewbacca and Han Solo. Someone's coming, Chewie. Who's there? It's Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. Now I know the Force is with us. Darth Vader, R2-D2, C-3PO, and other Kenner Star Wars action figures, each sold separately. All right, so it is time to give thanks to not only the new folks who have signed up for the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, but folks writing us those Apple Podcast reviews that we love to read. So let's start with that, Gabe. What, what's our what's our Apple Podcast review here? All right, we have a review called "So Fun and Informative" by Millennium Focus. Jason and Gabe are joys to listen to, and they always pull great audio clips from all sorts of sources, from toy ads to interviews. Their sound editing is top-notch, and their arrangement of the main title is exciting every time. I love the outro as well. Augie's great municipal band to Yub Nub and the many Star Wars creators and characters saying thank you or may the force be with you is also warm and just great. I'm trying to catch up with every episode because they're all fantastic. I think the first Star Wars movie Jason and Gabe saw in theater was Return of the Jedi, so I love hearing that perspective as someone who would have been a similar age when The Phantom Menace came out. 
I also love that they're dedicated an entire year to Phantom Menace for its 20th anniversary. These blast points are too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial Stormtroopers are so precise. All right. Thank you, Millennium Focus. That's uh, That pretty much covers it all there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, and I, that's that's us. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're very happy we dedicated an entire year to Phantom Menace also. And so, yeah, here, here's a shout out to all the, the new members this month for the, the Blast Points Army on Patreon. So big thank you to iRebel, Jeff, Thomas, Brent, a.k.a. Pulvo, and Pablo. Thank you all so much, and thank you all members of the Blast Points Army on Patreon, each and every one of you out there. We love you. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. 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 Hi, JJ Abrams here. On behalf of the entire cast and crew of Star Wars Episode 7, thank you. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. And if you want us to read your review... All you got to do is if you listen on some sort of Apple thing, go write a little something nice over there. And yeah, we love getting them. We love reading them. And we'll read yours in an upcoming episode. And don't forget to check out our website, BlastPointsPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're on Facebook, make sure you're a member of the Blast Points Super Chill Group, where it is always Blast Points fun 24-7. Best thing on Facebook, hands down. Case closed, no prisoners. Yeah. And yeah, like I said, if you want to support the show in a different way, we've got the Blast Points Army over there on Patreon, where we're going to be getting back to commentaries in a little bit and some bonus shows before Mandalorian starts in October. And I think we got some pretty fun commentaries coming coming your way over there on the uh, on the Blast Points Army. But yeah, that about wraps up this uh, episode 224, The Art of Rogue One. You can still get this book anywhere. It's still out there. It's on Amazon. It's not too expensive. Yeah, if you are an art book fan and this one is not in your collection, you are missing out. If you're a Rogue One fan and this is not in your collection, you're missing out. And you can always go to the library and just spend a, spend a week or two with it. And shout out to to Josh Cushions. Like he wrote the the art book for John Carter too, which I, when I read that I was like, that's probably really good. Yeah, and that's a movie that would be really interesting to read about some of the behind the scenes because I kind of never really dug into any of that. So yeah, I have to look that up. We'll be back next week for more fun. And uh, yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you everybody. Bye bye. May the force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the force be with you.
Star Wars was a massive risk. It feels like looking back, it feels crazy that anyone got nervous about it. But the studio back then were trying to pull the plug on it, and like, I think he went through hell making that film, and then it was the greatest hit of all time. And and so it feels like if you're going to do anything in the spirit of Star Wars, you've got to go out on a limb and you've got to take a few risks. And and we had a license to do that with this because because it's a standalone movie. It meant we could. We could be unique and, and 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 not have to let it lead into other movies. We could yeah. just go for broke on this one. Meter force, be with Arnold. 